Hello, everyone. Hey, guys. Oh, come on. Okay, so I do this every time. And you do it every time, right, Reuben? Yes. Yes. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Y'all are truly a beautiful crowd. Some people think that's a joke. That's not a joke. First of all, um, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who has helped us in, in the moving. So real quick, let's celebrate those people who have helped us. Y'all have really helped us out. Um, also, actually, this feels really uncomfortable. Hold on a sec. Thank God. Okay. It didn't get sold. I saved this one. Also, um, the last couple weeks, we've seen some uh, baptisms here at Montgomery. Actually, the past two weeks, we've had a baptism each Sunday. So let's celebrate that also. Yeah. That's awesome. We love you guys, and uh, welcome to the family, as dysfunctional as we are. Um, this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 3. That is on page 1064 if you're using the Bibles in front of you. If you have another Bible, that's cool. See, I like this one because it swivels, and I can still look at all of you. Um, so bear with me on that one. If you don't have a Bible and you want to take this one with you, feel free to take it with you. If you have a friend that you know that needs uh, a Bible or that you would like to give this Bible to, feel free to uh, take it for them as well. Um, but before we get into the Word together this morning, uh, let's pray together. Father, uh, thank you so much for this time that we have together. God, help us to take your word and allow it to penetrate our hearts this morning. God, I pray that you would use, uh, use me to uh, portray your word well and in the way that you uh, intend for us to hear these words this morning. I pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts to, uh, to listen to what you have to tell us this morning. God, open our hearts and soften our hearts. I pray that we would do uh, what it says in Psalm 119, that we would hide your word in our hearts, that we would not sin against you, Father. I pray that we would keep uh, your word in our hearts and being willing to share with others as well. Father, we, uh, I thank you for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path, God. Thank you so much for your word and for your love. I pray that you bless us this morning, um, that you bless this time that we have to be together, Father. Bless our family, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, like I said, we're going to be in John chapter 3, which is on page 1064. I cheated and put a note in there. Um, and we're going to be going through verses 1 through 17 together. So let's read that real quickly. It starts, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a, a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter into their mother's womb a second time and be born. 
Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. You see, flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, in this story, we have a man whose name is Nicodemus. And as a Pharisee, he is a teacher of the Old Testament law. He's a member of religious leadership, and he comes and he's talking to Jesus. And he comes to him by night because, let's, let's put it bluntly, they didn't really get along with each other, the Pharisees and Jesus. They weren't the best of friends. But he comes to him and acknowledges Jesus' power. He says, surely you are a powerful man. And he even says that God is with him. But Jesus responds to him by saying something about this born-again deal. This born-again thing. And Nicodemus asks him a very, a very logical question. In my opinion, I think it's very logical because I would have had the same uh, question about how can someone be born again if they're already born the first time, right? That seems like a pretty logical question. He said, you can't enter into your mother's womb and be born a second time, right? As all the mothers in the room cringe. Can you... Imagine that. Nicodemus is like, what is this? He says, surely that's not what you're referring to, right, Jesus? This, that can't be it. No way. Because, really, if, if that's the case, I don't understand what you're talking about. And quite frankly, it bothers me. I kind of have mixed emotions about this. And here Jesus is talking with Nicodemus about what we've seen in the past two weeks. Because very plainly in, uh, in verse 6, Jesus says that flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. And he's saying that really you need to hit reset. He says you need to hit the reset button. Now there's a lot of debate about what 
is going on in verse 5. Some will say that Jesus means baptism when he's talking about born of water and spirit. Some will say that he's referring to what happens during childbirth. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your neighbor because I'm not going into that right now. But either way you look at it, either way you look at it, accepting the grace and mercy of Jesus is hitting reset. Jesus tells him that in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you must hit this reset. And it appears that Nicodemus has gone from a teacher of the law who would have been seen as knowing everything to now actually saying that he doesn't know much of anything because he doesn't get it. He's not understanding what Jesus is talking about. This whole rebirthing concept is kind of strange to him. To him by using something from the Old Testament. He references something that God told Moses in the Old Testament to do in the book of Numbers, because we've all read the book of Numbers, right? With a snake to heal those who have been bitten and save them. Jesus says that just as the snake was raised to save the lives of people, Jesus says that he will be raised on the cross to die to save people. At them, we get into John 3.16, which is probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, arguably. I mean, I've seen it on a lot of posters. Um, some, some football players eye black one time and stuff like that. But I feel like we don't pay enough attention to verse 17. Because verse 16 is true. God did love the world that he gave his son to die for us. But we, we stop there. But if you keep reading, it doesn't just stop at, at that. It says that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved through him. He doesn't come to pass judgment on the world. He comes so that the world will know him, accept him, and be saved through him. In fact, we see that Jesus is actually more condemning of religious people than he is non-religious people. He comes to exalt those who are low and take down those who are prideful and feel like they have it all together. We've seen people come forward the past two weeks and say, I've you know, I want to know more about this rebirth, reset thing. Tell me more about that. I see that, Je- uh, that Jesus was raised on the cross and died for me there, and I, I want to be uh, a part of that. I, I want to accept that he died for me so that I can live for him. I want this eternal life that he refers to. I want to hit that reset. But, you know, in making that decision, I want us all to consider that sometimes there's a calling that comes with it. In hitting that reset, sometimes there's a calling that happens. Sometimes there's a reset of the calling that we have in our lives, or, or even our mentality needs to hit a reset as well. See, when we hit this reset and we're born again, of, of the spirit instead of the flesh. You're welcome, moms. Um, we, we get a calling after that. 
We get a new way of doing life. Another reset could be that God calls you uh, to some place. I wouldn't know anything about that. God's just randomly calling you to somewhere. No experience on that. But in most of Genesis, I would argue from chapter 12 through 50, which 50 is the end of the book, we see a lot of dysfunction in the family that happens in Genesis. And, and so this, this story is about the making of this one family. And they, they stop and settle in Haran. And Abram, who is later Abraham, at this point is around the age of 75, and his wife Sarai is barren. So there's not really a lot of foreseeable future for this group moving forward. But God calls them to something. God calls Abram to something. In Genesis 12, which is on page 11, Abraham receives this calling. Let me get there. But it's no longer a story about one man. The story is now about one family. And if you think that your family is messed up, take a look in Genesis. Because this family seriously puts the fun and dysfunctional. I'm telling you, if, you're like, if your family is one of those families that says, um, we should probably do Thanksgiving somewhere else this year. Because really the stories and, and, and all of the banter that goes on, you don't want to be there for that. This family would give you a serious run for your money. There are a lot of things that happen in this family. There's struggle, fighting, jealousy, people that are grief-stricken, struggles between people and God. There's temptation. Some of those people are patient and loving, but some of them are also conniving and hateful. I mean, we see all of it. But that's us as well, isn't it? Genesis is a, is a living part of our story because it's so relatable to us in so many different ways. No matter where you come from, no matter where your walk of life has, has been or has brought you here, your story is similar in some way, shape, or form. The people in this story of Genesis come alive because of how their stories seem to live on through the continued brokenness that this world has. The brokenness of this world continues to bring a, a revolving door of stories that are familiar. You'll read through Genesis 12 through 50, and you'll think to yourself, really, that's in the Bible? You know, the first time I read through that, I couldn't believe the kind of stuff that the Bible talked about. I'm like, this Bible would be rated R. This is crazy. That's so broken. That's so messed up. And it is. But that's our story. A lot of stuff in there has happened to you and me both. No matter where you come from. No matter who your family is. That's why I say, in my opinion, 
until you read the Bible as your own story, I don't think you've ever really read it before. Because it is truly God's story, but it's our story as well, right? It's a part of our story. Because even if we don't like where these stories are going, even if we don't like where these stories are taking us, it's still a part of our story. I heard a story this last week about um, a guy named Wes Seliger. Anybody ever heard of Wes Seliger before? Oh, come on, guys. No? Okay. I'm just weird. So Wes was telling this story about um, his childhood when he was growing up. And, and, and part of his story was he loved playing in the dining room. That was his favorite room to play in. Because nobody went in. We all have those rooms. Some, some of us have those rooms that nobody ever goes into. That was the dining room for Wes. And he loved playing in there because in the dining room there was this huge oval rug that was woven. Has anybody ever seen those woven rugs before? And they're mostly in oval shapes. At least that's the only way I've seen them before. And, and they just kind of wrap around and somehow they stay together. That's one of these rugs. And it was one of those rugs that he loved to play on because he could set all of his matchbox cars on top of it. And Wes had a ton of matchbox cars. They're kind of like Hot Wheels, if you, if you don't know. But he describes that he had cases of them, and they were stacked up in his room. And he would bring these cases out, and he would set them in the dining room one by one by one, and he would open them up, and he would carefully take out each Maxbox car, and he would put it on this oval rug. He would make sure that they were clean, they didn't have any problems, and that there was no error in them. So it was almost like an artist. He would lay out this, this, this masterpiece on this rug of all of these little colored Matchbox cars. And it was almost like it was his own little, like, racetrack thing. He would put the, you know, he put the purple Camaro here, and, and he would put the white Mustang there, and then the dump truck goes over there, and, and he would have all of them lined up the same way every time. And it was a beautiful thing to look at. And actually, once they were all in their spot, he would leave them there for about three days. Because nobody ever went in that room. He never had to worry about anybody messing with these matchbox cars. Nobody ever being rough with them or, or, or doing anything bad to them. They were always in this pristine condition when he would come back. One day, he had, um, he had all these matchbox cars laid out. And nobody would ever go into that dining room unless they had company. And so he has them all laid out, just like he likes them. And he's just staring at them. And he's just looking at them like that. All of a sudden, he hears this car pull up. 
car door shuts. And there's this knock at the door. And it's his aunt, his uncle, and his cousin Susie. And we all have those cousins that we really never want to see again, right? Don't tell me I'm a terrible person. We all have those cousins that we don't ever want to see again, right? Y'all are with me? Cousin Susan was Wes's cousin that he never wanted to see again. Not because she was mean to him, but because she always wanted to play with his toys. And she was really particular, or he was really particular about his toys. And sure enough, Cousin Susan comes up and she says, Wes, I'm here! And she jumps in the door and she's like, Wes! And he dives on the floor because he's like, no, she can't play with my Matchbox cars. And he's trying to put them away. And he's trying to put them in all these cases, but it's too late. She's already seen them. And she runs over and she's like, oh my gosh, it's cars. Oh, let's play together. Come on, let's play. And she jumps down onto the floor and she starts playing with all of these Matchbox cars. She starts pushing on them and running them around on this thing. She's smacking them together. And Wes goes in to his mom, and he's like, Mom, 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 you're not going to believe this. Can we please put my cars away? Because Cousin Susan, she's just, she's just smacking them into each other, and she's pushing on them, Mom, and they're my favorite cars, and we can't do it like that. That's not how you're supposed to play with your cars. You're supposed to be nice with your cars. You're supposed to be good with them. Can we just put the, can we just put the Matchbox cars away and, and I'll, I promise you I'll play with her just some other game. Just some other game but my Matchbox cars. His mom says, no, Wes. They're already out. Let Susan play with the cars. But mom! No, Wes. We're going to let Susan play with the cars. Okay. And he just comes in and walks. But then he goes back, and she's still crashing them together and still smashing them and pushing down on them real hard. And he can, he can see the wheels bending on the cars. And, and his heart's breaking, and he's like, oh, not my cars. Not my cars. And she's... She just starts taking all these cases of whatever he could salvage and he was putting in the cases. He's like, I'll just, I'll organize them later. I don't care right now. And she's dumping them out. And then Wes is like, no, that's not how we play with our cars. That's not how we do it. And she just looks at him. She's like, let's take them outside. And he's like, no, those are my cars. We can't take them outside. They'll get ruined. Oh, my gosh. And then Susan looks at him. She walks away. And she comes back in. And then Wes's mom comes back in. She's like, Wes, Susan wants to take the cars outside. We're going we're gonna to treat her nice. We're going to take the cars outside. Okay. And so they take the cars outside. And he says, you know, the most amazing thing happened. He said they started making roads through the sandbox and, and in the dirt around the outside of the yard. And they would take them along these roads and they would dig tunnels and they would, they would push the cars through with sticks to make them go all the way through. And They even had this one little spot where they built this ramp that they could jump off and, and, uh, and they would fly over into the grass. 
And Wes is like, most amazing thing happened. It's like, I've never done it like this before. He said, it was the most amazing thing. And you know what? The cars were never the same way again. The cars had, had dirt all in them. They were bent. The wheels were bent. They were missing parts. And I'm pretty sure one, a couple of the mirrors were missing on some of the cars. And you never really could get all the dirt out of them. You know, he said, even my dump truck, I could never get the dirt out of it. He said, those cars were never the same again. He said, but something happened to me that day. Something happened to me. You see, this whole new world of playing with my Matchbox cars opened up to me. He said, I never thought about what you could do with these cars outside. This whole new world of playing that I never even imagined was now at my fingertips. Here's my theory. I think that when those of us that believe in God think about God, and if I ask you and you're honest with me, I think that many of us would confess that when we think about God, he's a lot like Cousin Susan. I think that he shows up when we don't want him to show up. He gets us to do things that we don't always want to do. He rearranges our lives. He challenges us. Sometimes he tells our mommies on us. But he likes, us to, con- he, he likes to convince us that this way of doing this thing is better than the way that we've been doing it. And we're afraid that he may take some of our favorite things and, and those may be the sacrifices that we have to make in order to have this whole new world of playing open up to us. Sometimes he takes our favorite things and he says, no, instead of putting it over here, actually, I, th- I think I want it over there. I think I want to take the matchbox cars outside. And if we're honest, I think we would say, when I think about God, I think about him this way. And if that's what you think of God sometimes, then you are absolutely correct. I believe that that's the God that we believe in. I believe that the God that we believe in is in the business of moving our cars. Not because he wants to be mean or because he wants to destroy our cars or anything like that but I think that he just wants to open up this whole new world of what it looks like to play with our cars. What does this new world that we could have never even imagined look like? That is what I think he's doing. For example, in Genesis 12 and verse 1, he says, look, I need you to trust me. He says, leave this place and go. But you know what? Let's read it together. If you forgot what page it's on in the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 11. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it starts with this. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country 
your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. It's pretty general. But he also says, here's my promise to you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You see, God uses I five times in this promise that he makes. He says, no, it's going to be me that does this. I'm going to be the one that does it. That's completely contrast to what we see in Genesis 3 where creation says, no, I think we got this. Or even earlier, like in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, if you've ever read that story, they say, well, we want to make our name great. We're going to build this tower because we're going to make our name great. But God says, no, I'm going to do this. It'll be me that does this. So God says, I need you to go, but here's what I'm going to do for you. It'll happen, I promise. It'll happen. I just need you to go. You see, sometimes our reset can be God calling us to things. Sometimes it can be God calling us to different things. You see, the spiritual birth that we looked at in John means new life. And sometimes, like I said, a new life means a new call. And I think that either way, we look at both of these passages. God moving our cars is a form of reset. But the question still remains of how are we going to respond? How will we respond to whatever reset we're taking? How are we going res- to respond to God moving our cars? Because God is in the business of moving cars. In this story, God moves Abram's cars. And in John 3, Jesus moves Nicodemus's cars. Because in both stories, there's challenging there's movement, and there's calling. You see, Nicodemus knows the Old Testament down to the punctuation marks if you're talking about the law. And Abram grew up in a home that was polytheistic, which means that they worship many gods, like there was a god for this and that, and one over the rain, and you know, so on and so forth. But God challenges Abraham to place his trust in this one God. But how will he respond? Because that would have been completely contrast to what Abram grew up with. I think that God is moving our cars. Whether you're like Nicodemus and trying to think through and decide what this whole rebirth concept means. It's like, is my mom going to hate me after this thing? Or how is this going to work? Or are you with Abram and being challenged and being called to new things? And I think that both can be considered as hitting reset. A way that God moved my cars recently has been actually coming here. You see, in the situation that I was in in 
in Cincinnati. I was working for a church part-time, but then I did construction full-time. And so I would, I would go to work in the morning, and, and I would come home, and I would work more. And then on top of that, you've got all of the, the wear and tear that that construction job was having on me because of the lifting, the jackhammering, the long hours. I mean, it was, it was something. And one day I was sitting in the spare bedroom where I would work on writing messages for Sundays and really just doing my thing for church. And I, would, um, I was sitting there, and Shelby's just hanging out in the living room. Um, doing, I don't know what, I don't remember, ask her. And it occurred to me that I maybe said like 10 words to her that day, which was actually a very talkative day for me on those two jobs. And as I was thinking about it, I realized, man, I'm growing tired of this. Man, this is hard. It's terrible. Because it was. And as selfish as it may seem to say, I was, I was pulling 9 to 13 hour shifts continuously, regularly. It was a part of my routine. And then there were some days if I was working up in Columbus, which is a two-hour drive one way, then you get into pulling, you know, you got four hours both ways plus the 9 to 13. I mean, you're easily talking 16 to 17 hours. And then I would come home, and I would work on church stuff. And I'd go to bed, and I'd sleep a couple hours, and it would all happen all over again. And I'm sitting in this room, and I'm thinking to myself, Man, I'm so tired of doing this. I'm so tired. Shelby even told me a couple of days before, she said, Corey, I can see it in your face. I can see how bad it's wearing you down. And I come out of that room, and I've got tears in my eyes, and I I look at Shelby, and I said, Shelby, am I a bad husband? And even asking that question cut through me. Because I, I realized that my worst fear of being a bad husband was becoming a potential reality. She reassured me that I wasn't a bad husband, but it doesn't change how I was feeling inside. And she, she told me, she was like, no, it's just about you and being called into ministry. We're doing what we can right now to put food on the table, and then one day, Corey, it'll, it'll work out. And so I'm, I'm sitting there on the couch next to her with tears in my eyes, and I look down at her, at her stomach because she's pregnant at the time, and I'm like, I can't. I cannot be a bad father, too. It's like, I can't do that. And it killed me every time I thought about it. I was like, I can't be a bad father to my son. I won't do it. 
So I maybe stayed in that place for a couple of months, working the construction, working the church job, still doing that ordeal. And I was sending out emails for church jobs because I'm like, Shelby, we've got to get out of this situation. I'm like, Shelby, I can't do it. And I know it's hard on you. Once the baby comes, if we're still here, are you going to be okay with me being gone? Like, at least nine hours a day, 13 hours a day, maybe 16, 17 sometimes. At then one, one trip that we went on, we went to El Paso to visit Shelby's um, sister and my brother-in-law. And we came over to Las Cruces. And, and for some reason, at the state line, once we crossed it, we felt this thing within us. And we, and we pondered with it, and we went, and we, did our, we went about our day, and on our way back, Shelby and I looked at each other almost simultaneously and said, what if we looked at a, for a job in New Mexico? It's the same words at the same time. And so we did. As soon as we got back to that house, we went upstairs, and I got on my computer that I brought because I was still working on church stuff, and, and I was looking at jobs, and this job popped up. And I read it to Shelby, and she said, Corey, that sounds just like you. I think God was moving our cars. I think that God was, for some reason, moving our cars. And I think that we were at a time where we were hitting that reset. Where we said, look, I don't know, I don't know whatever situation you may be in where you're like, I really need to hit that reset. But for us, that was it. We said, man, I need to hit that button. Bad. And we needed to be here for some reason. Everything worked out smooth. Everything went fine. Everything just coasting. Sold our house in two days. We came here and, and we had um, Mike Jones's son, his name's Evan, who works in real estate, was even video chatting us homes that we could buy here. And we had the whole team working for us. And we got here. And, and we looked at what this new community was going to look like and what this whole new ministry was going to look like. On top of it, th I don't know if y'all have ever heard this before, but this place is weird. Like, like, I'm not talking this, I'm talking Albuquerque place. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't pick up the pitchforks yet. But Albuquerque's weird. But God was moving our cars. And we came here, and this family became ours. This family became the family that we needed. With one on the way, and a marriage that I was in tears over because I felt bad about where I was and what I was doing. 
embraced us and said, if you need anything, you let me know. And this family has been that for us. And when we found this position, it was like a weight had been lifted off of our shoulders. Because we have definitely been blessed here. And as a church collectively, you know, I think that we, I think God is moving our cars. And this whole new thing that we're going through and this whole new thing that we're working on and all the moving parts that are going on right now, I think God is moving our cars collectively. But the question was there for Nicodemus. The question was there for Abram. And the question's there for us. How are we going to respond to God moving our cars? How are we going to respond to this whole new world of what ministry looks like moving forward? We're going to enter into a time of prayer together. You can pray by yourselves. You can, you can pray with each other. Um, you can pray, pray as a group. We'll have shepherds, and I'll be down here if you want to pray with us about how God is maybe pushing you to hit reset or maybe about how God is just moving your cars. We want to pray with you about that. But before we move into that time together, I want to end by, um, by saying something. There's this Hebrew word, shalom. And it's a blessing that means wholeness, restoration, peace, a bunch of different things. And I want to wish that on to you, and I pray that you'll wish that back on to me. Because in whatever way that God may be moving your cars, in whatever way that God may be challenging you to hit reset, I pray that in that movement, that it brings wholeness, restoration, and peace to this world that we live in. And I pray that through doing that, you'll bring that as well. So I'm going to end on this word because I really want to see this world look like Genesis 1 rather than Genesis 3, to be honest with you. I really would like to see this world look more like how God created it and how it looked after. So in that, I want to bless you. And as I say it, you feel free to repeat it to me. Shalom.